Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. Marriage at the Resurrection. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was same with the third, and in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, You are not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush? How God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Thank you. All right, welcome back, everyone. So this passage is continuing on from these conversations we've been looking at the last few weeks where you know, Jesus has been having conversations with the different religious leaders in Jerusalem. And we've seen him, you know, warning the nation about the coming destruction through his parables about the fig tree and the orchard. We've seen seen him driving out the the merchants at the temple area. And then last week we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians try to trap Jesus by asking if it was right to pay tax to Caesar. So all of these conversations of people trying to discredit him or get the crowd to to hate him. So they're always asking him some tricky questions. And today we're reading about a third group coming to try and trap Jesus and trying to make him lose some of the popularity and influence. So it starts off by saying, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So the Sadducees were a minority group of Judaism, and they had a lot of influence in running the temple. They were very wealthy and very powerful, but they weren't the prevailing view of Judaism at the time. There were a lot more who followed the beliefs of the Pharisees rather than the Sadducees. And because they're a minority group, it's quite hard to find unbiased information that when historians are talking about them. It's always got this sort of negative tinge whenever people are talking about the Sadducees. Most Jewish rabbis or historians didn't agree with them, and neither did the Christians. So there's always this sort of negative flavor whenever anyone's writing about them. When the Romans took over, the Sadducees supported the new rulers, which is how they were able to maintain such a sway in running the temple. And notice here, even in the book of Mark, It starts off, and and he's already putting a bit of a dig in in his introduction, making sure that the readers start off with putting these Sadducees in a box. You know, these these are the bad guys, or or at least, you know, the ones that aren't the true followers of of the faith. They don't even believe the promises of God. You know, resurrection of the dead was one of the core beliefs of Judaism. For thousands of years, 
they believed this. And, and they, they argued this in so many ways. They, they would argue about the small details of resurrection. That, that was a given. Then they would argue about things like whether you, what clothes you'd be resurrected in. Would you wear the clothes you were in when you died or would you get given something new? And where, where would you rise in the resurrection? Would you rise where you were buried or would you all rise in Jerusalem? Some of the rabbis even had this idea that if you were buried outside of the land in another nation, there are all these underground tunnels and your body would roll and find its way back to Jerusalem and you'd all rise in the same place. Sounds ridiculous. But, but again, it's, they're arguing the, the fact that resurrection is a given. They're trying to figure out how it works. They'd argued whether we would have the scars on our bodies or whether our resurrected bodies would be perfect. Would we eat and drink? And if so, would it be the same food we eat now or something different? You know, would we get tired and need to rest? They're all very interesting questions and, and you know, thinking about what, what it will be like in the life to come and how it all works. But, but all of those conversations start from a place of believing that there is some kind of life to come. That was an age-old question. Job says it, if a man dies, shall he live? And we can find many Old Testament examples that show their belief in life after death. Just to share a few with you today. In Psalm 16, we read, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest, sure, rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And again in Psalm 49, But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. And Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. You know, and, and we could go on, there's many other examples of this, but just, just to point out that it's, it's a pretty well-established belief that there was life after death, at least for those faithful to God. But it says in that introduction, it says that the Sadducees, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. How did they come to such a different conclusion? And there's a couple of foundational beliefs that helped to get them here. One of the key ones is that they only trusted the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books of the Bible that were attributed to Moses. That was the only thing that had authority in their eyes. And in those first books of the Bible, we don't really read too much about the afterlife and about the life to come. It's... You know, there's plenty mentioned in other places of the Old Testament. You saw some of those examples from Job and the Psalms, all the other prophets, King David. It wasn't recorded in the books from Moses. That was more about, um, you know, the origins, the nation of Israel moving out of slavery and into the Promised Land, setting up the law. That wasn't the purpose of those books. But for them, if it wasn't recorded in those books from Moses, then it had no authority. That's according to the Sadducees. And ironically, that doctrine doesn't, that's not given by Moses himself. You know, he never mentions that the story would end with him. In fact, he makes it clear that there is more to come. They believe that the soul is not immortal and that there is no afterlife and no rewards or penalties after death. Any blessings from God would come in this earthly life, not the life to come. You know, it was still important to follow God's law, but this would result in a happy life now not later. They mocked those who voluntarily lived a hard life. 
those who were sacrificing their own comfort and happiness. You know, they didn't believe there was anything, any rewards to come later. So it didn't make sense for them to be storing up treasures in heaven. Additionally, no belief in the afterlife means no interest in the Messiah, no interest in salvation, no needs for salvation. Josephus, who was an ancient Jewish historian from this time, he brags that the Sadducees were often forced to back down if their, their arguments clashed with the Pharisees. And he says that the Pharisees were way more popular with the multitude. And you'd think that the crowds would just completely expel this kind of belief that's it's so obvious against what they know to be true. But one of the things that these Sadducees learnt was how to walk a fine line between sort of sounding agreeable and you know, not being too obvious in, in the things that they were teaching. They were great at being very non-committal in public. They had no spine when it came to the crowds. And we saw this example a few weeks back. It didn't specifically mention that they were Sadducees, but it does say that the chief priests and the elders came to him, questioning the authority of Jesus. And the Sadducees at this time had a lot of power and influence in the temple, so it's, it's likely that most of those were Sadducees. And that, that was when they asked a question, they were questioning the authority of Jesus, and Jesus asked them a question. He said, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. And they discussed it amongst themselves, and they said, you know, if we say it's from heaven, then he'll, he'll ask, then why don't you believe me? Because John said that I was coming. And if they say it was of human origin, then they feared the people because everyone really did believe John was a prophet. So eventually they decided the best answer was, we don't know. Another example of, you know, weaseling out of their beliefs, trying to avoid controversy with the crowds. They're quite happily, happy to be diplomatic and save face. It sounds like politicians, yes, <laughs> absolutely. So these Sadducees, we read, they said, Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, then the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So this, this instruction was given to the people of Israel back in the Old Testament. We read of Moses giving them laws concerning Leverite marriage. We read that if, a bro if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son... His widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So it starts there, if brothers dwelled together, the, the idea here is that they had land in common, shared assets. And so a Leverite marriage is it's literally a, a marriage with a brother-in-law. The, the word Leverite, is, it's nothing to do with the tribe of, of Levi. It's from the Latin word that I'm not going to try to pronounce for you. Um, but in ancient times, it, it was quite common in a lot of cultures around the Middle East and Africa and still happens in some places today. If a man died without a child, it was common for the man's unmarried brother, unmarried, unmarried brother to marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the deceased. A widow would marry a brother-in-law, and the first son produced in the union was considered the legal descent of the dead husband. So it would only occur if a man died childless in order to continue his family line. The brother of a man who dies without children is permitted and encouraged to marry the widow, but either of these parties may refuse to go through with the marriage, but it was considered shameful if the brother refused. Another example of this Levite marriage in the Bible is the story of Ruth and Boaz. 
Ruth's first husband died without leaving a child. And later, Ruth met this rich landowner named Boaz, and he happened to be a relative of Ruth's late husband. Ruth asked Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, that is, to marry her and preserve and redeem the land that her husband owned. And Boaz agreed, but informed Ruth that there was actually another relative of nearer kin, nearer descent, who had the obligation to marry Ruth and redeem her, and, and the obligation fell on that person. And as it turned out, the other relative officially transferred his right of redemption to Boaz, clearing the way for them to marry and maintain the land. So over time, we see that the, the net sort of gets a bit wider and extends to other relatives of the husband. But it, it followed a line of closeness, that it was, it was the expectation of those closest related. And it was only valid if they were single, not if they were married. And later on, we, we also read there's a little bit of argument whether it was if they had no kids or if they had no son. Because uh, later we read the laws of inheritance change that if someone had a daughter but no son, then the land was to go to them anyway. So this, pro- this practice of Leverite marriage was something that was specified for the people of Israel. It wasn't specified for Gentiles. And it was primarily about land inheritance, you know, not moving out of the intended tribes. It was very important in those early times that the land remained in the tribe. Uh, you know, if a woman's husband died and she has no kids, then she would inherit the land. If she, if she remarries a Gentile or someone from another tribe, then, then we've got a problem, especially if the land is co-owned with her late husband's brother, family. You know, there's an importance about that promised land and the areas that w- were divided up, that they were remaining in the families they were allocated. So you, you could say that this, this practice was also good for you know, supporting your family, ensuring a legacy of the memory of your brother. You know, that all sounds nice things and nice reasons for it, but primarily it was related about land inheritance and keeping things where they should be. So that's a little bit about this idea of Leverite marriage, this, this thing that Moses talks about. And it, so it was encouraged and it was considered the right thing to do, but it wasn't forced on either party. In Deuteronomy it goes on to mention that if the brother refuses they were to gather with the elders who would try and convince him if he still refuses, the woman would take off his shoes, take his sandal and spit in his face. And it was, it was, it was considered a big you know, dis- dishonor that the brother's not stepping up and doing what he should. But at the end of the, you know, you're not getting stoned for it. It's, it's not the end of the world. So it was strongly encouraged and expected, but it was not forced. And notice again that the Sadducees say that Moses said you must marry. That's not technically true, but that's not important for this story anyway, but just another example of this legalism becoming too strong. So they come to Jesus with this ridiculous picture. They say, now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? You can kind of picture them snickering as they're asking this question of Jesus. They don't even believe the premise of their own question. They're not actually interested in what Jesus thinks about the afterlife. They've got their mind made up already. They're just trying to make him pick a side in this, this decision. And by prompting the question like this, they're expecting that if he says there is an afterlife, Jesus is going to look very unreasonable and look, look a bit like an idiot by thinking there's an afterlife and there's this awkward situation going on. 
So they tell this ridiculous story about a woman married seven times with no kids. The Sadducees are so caught up in earthly things that they disregard a resurrection because they are picturing the wrong thing. They're picturing a resuscitation, that the dead would be raised to exactly the same earthly experience that they're living right now. If that was the case, then yes, eternal life might be a little bit awkward for that woman and those brothers. The life to come is a bit of a mystery. We don't know everything, but we do know that it's not going to be exactly the same experience that we live now. So Jesus replied and says, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So Jesus is saying, you know, he's saying, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. That's, that's kind of the two things you would hope that your temple leaders and religious leaders would understand, right? The, the scriptures and the power of God. That's, that's the bare minimum, you would hope. It's a very bold indictment from Jesus. He's saying, the problem isn't me and my beliefs. The problem isn't God. The problem is you. You are ignorant and detached from truth, he tells them. You have no ability to understand, and you have no interest to understand. You doubt the power of God. You are so narrow-minded that you can't believe God would do something different in the life to come. If you knew the power of God, you would know he can create any kind of life he chooses. God is so much more than they could conceive. And he says, you know, when the dead rise, they will be like angels. They won't be married or given a marriage. And when, when we hear that we won't be married in heaven, you know, how does, don't answer this, but how, how does that make you feel? Don't answer out loud, you know. In our current experience, marriage is the closest relationship we can experience. Um, it's, it's the closest thing we can perceive. So when Jesus says we won't be married, that kind of makes us a little bit sad and a little bit like, hold on, what's going on here? What's been taken away from us? It sounds like we're going to lose something. It sounds like a step backwards. But I don't think that's the case. Um, it's, it's amazing how quickly our thoughts can spiral. I don't know if you guys think the same way as me, but maybe it's just my brain. You know, Thinking, we won't be married in heaven. Will we even get to spend time to, together? Will we even recognize each other? Will we remember our time from this life? And you know, all of a sudden, we're in this place, and Jesus has said nothing about that. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how quickly just our brains can take something that should be a good thing and make it sound like we're heading for this you know, eternal life as someone who's been brain-wiped void of any relationships with those we love. Maybe you can relate, or maybe that's just me. But all Jesus has said here is that we won't be married. He doesn't say we won't recognize each other, that we won't be close to each other, that we won't be hanging out every day. I'm not sure how time and things work. That's way too confusing for my brain. But all of that is to say it's, it's likely that our relationships in heaven will be better in every way than what we can understand from this perspective here on earth. You know, when Jesus says we won't be married, I don't think that's saying we're moving away from a, a lesser relationship. I think unmarried in heaven will be better in every way than married on earth. It will be a deeper connection than what we can currently comprehend. You know, even on an individual level, I, I expect my relationship with Becca in heaven will be closer than it is now, that I will know her even more fully, that we'll be even more in agreement, and even more joy, you know, better everything. That's my expectation. Even some of the practical things of, you know, of marriage here in our earthly life, you know, having children and filling the earth, 
doesn't make a lot of sense in a resurrection where there's no sin or death, you know, no need to populate. You know, one of the great things about marriage is that, um, you know, that idea of iron sharpens iron, that, that we can work on each other and, and, and help each other. Again, in the life to come, we will have Jesus for that. Even just those practical things, you know, developing character here on earth, um, you know, all the security things, all the joys and pleasures, those will, will become so much less important in heaven because each of those criterias will be exceeded. So I don't really know how things will be in heaven. The Sadducees don't know either. But in, in their uncertainty, they, re, uh, they rejected the whole idea. Instead, I think it's better to say, I don't really know. I can't understand how heaven works and how God's going to make it all work in terms of our relationships and stuff. But I trust that God has the power to do it and I trust that he will fulfill his promise to do it. I can't remember where I heard it, um, but someone described the Bible as like a mosaic and we're trying to piece together our understanding of things with little bits that, you know, from here and there, pulling all we know about heaven or the afterlife or, you know, any topic, trying to pull all these pieces together to show a bigger picture. So this little piece that we've seen today that says that we won't be married in the life to come, that's not the only piece of the puzzle that we've got, is it? It goes right alongside our expectations of unimaginable joy, no sin, no death, no sorrow. It goes alongside being reunited with family, feasting together, dwelling with God. It, it's a part of that same puzzle. So when Jesus says we won't be married in the resurrection, there is no way he's implying it's going to be worse than what we know now. We're not going to be losing anything. It won't be a step backwards from the closeness that you experience now with your partner. It will be more and not less. Lastly, Jesus does take a side in the debate about resurrection. And he makes it very clear that they're wrong about this one. And he chooses a really interesting way to prove it. He says, Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So as I mentioned, you know, the Sadducees had a really high view of scripture, but only those first five books. They didn't trust any of the oral traditions, no add-ons, none of the Psalms or the prophets. So Jesus is quoting here from the book of Exodus, which is it's one of the approved texts from Moses. And Jesus, Jesus is showing them that he too takes scripture seriously. quotes the line, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, these people were dead at the time Moses heard from God in the burning bush, but God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He said, I am the God. He's speaking in the present tense. You know, Jesus is beating them here at their own game, but had such a narrow criteria of what held authority in their eyes, and Jesus, Jesus meets that demand and proves it from their own text. You know, Jesus is saying, you don't even know your scriptures well enough to know that God spoke in the present tense. And for him to be able to speak in the present tense, he couldn't say that unless they were still alive, or at least waiting for the resurrection. You know, these people still exist. God is saying, I am still their God. But Jesus makes it clear that he is God, the God of the living, and his people can look forward to resurrection and life with him. D.L. Moody, an American evangelist in the 1800s, writes this piece that I really love. He says, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? 
At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all. Out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal. A body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint. A body fashioned like unto his glorious body. You know, it's, it's normal from our perspective to fear death and to miss people who aren't with us anymore. But if what Jesus says is true, then it's actually something to be looking forward to. You know, it's like that phrase, you know, when we say that so-and-so will be rolling in their grave when you say or do something, that's, it, would, it implies it would be so horrific to that person that they would be disturbed in the afterlife. That is, in reality, that's nonsense. You know? They are currently experiencing something that is so good that whatever that terrible thing you're, you're referring to would not bother them in the slightest. The beliefs of these Sadducees weren't harmless. You know, there's plenty of things that we as Christians can disagree about, things that we can't know for sure, and we need to have grace to accept some differences of opinions. But rejecting life after death altogether is not compatible with what the Bible teaches. Interestingly, I think there's some things we can learn here. There's, there's a lot of similarities between the beliefs of the Sadducees and some aspects of progressive theology that are sneaking into Christianity. You know, I mentioned a lot of those historical writings of the Sadducees, they have this negative spin on them, and, and I think that's well deserved, uh, but it does oversimplify their views a little bit. In reality, they're a lot more subtle than their opponents would describe, or at, le- at least the Sadducees would explain them in a really crafty way. But you know, they're all very religious, they're, they're even more strict than the Pharisees about observing the law of Moses. So, so people would say that Sadducees don't believe in angels and or spirits. That's, that's the summary of the belief. But actually, they did. You know, they, they mentioned in the book of Moses. But what the Sadducees would say is that we no longer need angels or ministering spirits because we have the law of Moses. So this has allowed them to sound like they sit and agree with others. They say, yeah, of course we believe in angels. But in reality, they, said, they would say, but we can't expect them to communicate with humans or have any input because they're out doing other things they're not needed anymore so you can see how the critics would summarize that as just saying they don't believe in angels and it was the same with resurrection you know i mentioned how on earth could they get away with saying that they don't believe in a resurrection how would they not be kicked out by the crowds for this blasphemy and while the sadducees themselves they would they, they claim that they do believe in the resurrection that's that's how you fit in right of course i believe in the resurrection But if pressed on it, what they actually mean by this is that if you follow the law of Moses, God will bless you with a good life here on earth and with many children. Then when you die, your family line would continue. The faithful live on forever in the offspring. That's resurrection. You see what I mean? It's the same word saying, yeah, we we believe in resurrection. We're on the same team here. Same terminology, but a very different meaning. And we see similar things happening today in the church with some of these areas of progressive theology. Similar sounding words to gain acceptance when in reality they're so different and so empty. You know, that's how we end up with someone claiming to be a Christian who denies that Jesus is God, doesn't believe he performed any miracles, doesn't believe he died for our sins or that we even need saving, don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We need to be careful what people say, we need to be careful to compare what people say with what scripture says. If something sounds a bit fishy, we need to dig deeper. What do they mean by sin? What do they mean by life after death? It's quite scary how unsubtle some of these teachings are in the church. 
And unfortunately, even that label Christian doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that you believe the things that a Christian should believe or that the Bible teaches. So just a couple of points to wrap up. I think it's important that we should test everything against Scripture. Now, even what I'm saying, even what Graham and Sarah say, we can get things wrong. Jesus takes Scripture seriously, and we should too. Jesus makes it clear that there will be a resurrection and life after death. We need to trust God when he says the life to come will be good for those who trust in him. As difficult it is, we need to try not to limit God's power with our minds. We doubt things will be good because we can't see a way we could make it good. And just like the Sadducees in their wild scenario, painting a picture of this awkward reunion in heaven, you know, their minds, in their minds there was no way that that could not be an uncomfortable reunion. So they disregard the whole hope of life after death. When we can't understand how something will work, we need to focus on the, bits, on the other bits of the puzzle that we do understand and trust that God will make the confusing bits fit. You know, Jesus did a great job at responding to that question, a much better job than I would. And luckily, I don't have to answer it because Jesus did for us. He was able to answer that and prove them wrong in their beliefs, all while using their narrow criteria. But I think for us, there are some questions that we don't need to know the answer to, and some maybe that we can never know the answer to. And I think we need to be okay with simply responding, I don't know the answer to that, but I know this. You know, this piece of the puzzle is confusing. I'm not sure. Here's a hundred other pieces I'm sure about. You know, for example, if, Je- if, if I hadn't read Jesus' response to that question of marriage and the afterlife, I could still res- respond to that and reply saying, I don't know which brother she would be married to. I don't know if she would be married at all. But I do know that, they were, that we are promised all these other things about a great life, how great life will be in the resurrection. And I don't think it will be much of concern to any of the brothers or the widow in comparison. And I do know that God is smarter than me and that he's done lots of incredible things. And I'm sure his whole plan for the afterlife won't be derailed by this. We only have small pieces of the puzzle when it comes to the life to come. But every part is clear and it reiterates that it will be good. So let's be encouraged by what we do know and put our trust in God to take care of the rest.